chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, in this letter, it is one of the shortest letters, you'll notice that there's no rebuke. Unlike the, many of the other ones, Christ doesn't say, I have this against you. It seems to be positive, but it doesn't mean it's all that positive, because if the first letter to Ephesus was about loving the Lamb, that they had lost their first love, there's how do you get back to loving God, having that hot love for God, then this one is all about suffering for the Lamb. And it's important that you add for the Lamb there, because the Bible makes no promises that just because you have a hard life, you will be saved. Suffering is common to creatures living in a broken, sinful world. We're all going to suffer. Everybody will suffer. However, the Bible, and Revelation especially, distinguishes between suffering, about how you suffer and what you suffer. We're all going to suffer. But how and for whom you suffer is a different thing. And it's only to those who claim to suffer for the sake of the Lamb who are actually given the crown. We're all offered it. That was delightful. Um, <laughs> it's like Cinderella. No, it's no white. Anyway, um, so the crown is offered to everybody. It's a free open. Everyone, there's a crown. But only the ones who suffer for the sake of the lamb are offered this crown. So make no mistake, people have a hard life. Suffering does not qualify you for the kingdom. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's the simple truth. And what we see here in this letter, the short little letter, is a blueprint for what it means to suffer and how to endure it. In fact, it's very clearly, he tells us um, why and what they're suffering. Then he offers them hope or comfort and how God comforts them in their suffering. And then he extends hope and says, here's how you can have hope in the midst of terrible suffering. So you have suffering, comfort, and hope. And that's what we're going to look at quickly today. So, as usual, if you, as we said this before, if there's a letter, then you must understand who the letter is addressed to before you think of it relating to you. Otherwise, you're backwards. So we have to understand these letters. We have to know what's happening in these cities at the time. Smyrna is the second on the circular road. You can put the first picture up of, of well, Anatolia at the time. It's modern-day Turkey. So we started in Ephesus at the bottom left, and the letters follow this circular pattern, which would, pattern, which would have been the mail route. And we're on to Smyrna, which is also a coastal city. Now, here's what you need to know about this city, and it's quite a bit. First, in the 6th century B.C., it is destroyed. 600, 700 years before a revelation is written, the Smyrna is crushed and destroyed, and it lays not empty, but it begins to be recognized as a series of villages rather than a city. For 300 years, it's just scattered villages and tribes until a man comes, a group comes, and unites them, and Smyrna experiences a renaissance, this, this resurrection. In fact, people call it a risen city, as if it's like from the ashes, like a phoenix. So it rises up and it starts to become dominant yet again. And it's a beautiful city. It was beautiful. Here's the artist's rendering of what it would have looked like from the harbor. They had an encircled harbor. It was incredibly beautiful. It was, they had they minted coins. 
and on the coins it said, the first city of Asia in, in size and beauty. So it was beautiful. And if you look from the harbor up at the city, this is what you see today. This is modern. It rises up. And that we call, in, you know, I've been in Alberta, that's not a mountain. But they call it Mount Pagos. And around it, there would have been streets. They called them the streets of gold. And they built this, the, the roads around the city, so they circled and spiraled up to the top. And as you, you passed all these, these homes and things, there was temples everywhere. It was a beautiful city. There was temples to Sibylle, to Aphrodite, to Apollo. And at the very top was this one, the temple to Zeus. It was at the crown. In fact, they called it the city of the crown. Because at the very top of it, from the harbor, you could see this massive shrine and temple to Zeus. It was the crowning achievement of the city. Beautiful city, everything going very well in Smyrna at the time of Revelation. Now, Smyrna, we can save that one. That'll be coming up in a, in a bit, that picture. That's Masada. We'll talk about that. But the next thing you need to know about Smyrna is this. They were not just renowned for beautiful, being beautiful, but one scholar refers to them as the pet of Rome. So they had a long history of being really close with Rome. And it started way back in the 3rd century BC. If you know your history, you know Rome. Uh, the Roman Empire entered into a series, a hundred-long-year war against Carthage, the city in northern Africa with Hannibal. You'd heard the name. Um, uh, northern African city. And for a hundred years, they fight in what's called the Punic Wars. And Smyrna sided with Rome in this battle. Because it was a battle for the supremacy in the Mediterranean. And we know how it ended, but they didn't know how it was going to end. Smyrna hitches their wagon to Rome and loves Rome and supports them in everything they do. Think of, uh, I won't go into any details, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's certain countries that Christians think and, and people align themselves with and they say, this is my country. As, as they go, I go. And this is what Smyrna did. They loved Rome. They were known as a pet. Not just that, they were the first city in the Roman Empire to create a temple to, and the second one we'll put up there, the second temple here, looks similar to the first, that's a temple, still exists, to the Dea Roma, which means the goddess of Rome. They put a temple up for the goddess of Rome. They had temples for Livia, who was the emperor, Tiberius's wife. They had a temple for her, worship her too. They had ones for the Senate. They, were, they loved Rome. In fact, in the 20s, 20 to 26 AD, so around the time Jesus was getting near to his ministry and beginning his ministry, Smyrna entered into a contest with seven to 12 other cities to decide who would be granted the privilege of creating a temple to Tiberius Caesar. And they won. So Smyrna is a big Roman, pro-Rome city. Now, let's focus in now on what the church and the Jewish situation was in that city. We know the Jews had pushed themselves and were pushed by many forces out into the empire, especially with 70 AD. And we'll talk about that in a second. So there's Jews all over the Roman Empire. And Israel, Jews, Judaism, in the Roman Empire had special status. It was known as a religio licita, which means an allowable religion. So it had, it was a, you're allowed to be a Jew in Rome without being persecuted. And Jews were permitted to not have to worship the emperor. They had privileges. And this is partly because there was a lot of them, but also partly because the Jews had proven time and again that they were not easy to govern. They were always pushing, pushing. They didn't like having a yoke from Rome on them. And of course, their reputation culminates in a revolution that starts in 70 AD that causes Rome to destroy the temple and ransack Jerusalem. And about a thousand rebellious Jews leave Jerusalem and take up, for, take up um, sanctuary here. In this, and now, now we can put up Masada. In this wall, this used to be Herod's 
one of Herod's palaces, fortresses. And they take up residence there, about a thousand of them, and Rome comes, encircles it, besieges it, and rather than die at the hands of Rome and be taken captive, all but six people commit suicide and kill themselves. One, I believe it's one woman and five children are all that survived. This didn't exactly help their reputation as being a good gover- easy, easy people to govern. And it gets worse yeah, about 40 years after Revelation with the Bar Kokhba result, which we revolt, which we won't talk about. Now, all of this to say, here we have Rome that is, they have this uneasy relationship with the Jews. They're willing to give them some freedom as long as they pay their taxes and so on. But then comes Christianity. And Christians break into this history and they're known as a sect within Judaism. They're, they're Jewish. The problem, of course, is that Christians show that they're not really interested in being Jewish in the traditional sense. They're not going to forsake the Messiah. They're going to be a little different. They're getting the suspicion of people. And as a result of Christians pushing against the culture, Judaism starts to get put under the microscope. And Rome is saying, hey, get your guys in order. These Christians, this group of you, is causing trouble. So the Jews are in a hard place. What do they do? Do we continue to allow them to come to our synagogues? Or do we kick them out? What do we do? because we don't want to lose the privileges we have in the culture. So what they do, and it culminates in something called the curse of Minim. And we'll put it up on the board. This is what they post. This is what they create. For the apostates, let there be no hope, and uproot the kingdom of arrogance speedily and in our days. May the Nazarenes, the Christians, and the sectarians perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written together with the righteous. You are praised, O Lord, who subdues the arrogant. So the Jews decide we have to get rid of the Christians. We can't. They're, too, they're refusing to worship the one God. They won't drop this belief in the Messiah. There's a curse. We are apostate. And this then puts the Christians all over the empire and in Smyrna in a tough spot. We are now persona non grata. They have no friends. The government won't protect you. And your own people, at least that's who they thought at the time, won't. So now they're left almost on a raft out in the Roman Empire. And this, into this context where they have no friendship, no support, comes this letter. And that's an important thing you need to know, that they're suffering. And the letter tells us how they're suffering, three different ways, specifically, quickly, in verse 9. First thing, said that you're suffering tribulation, which is the word philipsis, which we're going to hear a lot. And that means pressure. You would philipsize an olive to get olive oil out of it. And so they're, they're suffering with this, this pressure to conform and to be good Jews so that they don't lose their status. There's pressure on them to conform, to be good citizens of Rome. Then they also have the tokea, which is poverty. He says, I know your poverty. Now, scholars note that this is not just mere poverty as if the Christians were just people who were lower classes. It's an intentional poverty that there were certain things placed on them and restrictions in the economy to keep them down to oppress them economically. So Christ says, I know what you're suffering in that regard. And the last one is he says, you're suffering as well, blasphemo, blasphemy, slander. And we know some of the slander, I'll quickly recite some. So we know to be a Christian at the time meant first, well, many things. You were accused of being a cannibal because communion, when you talk about eating and drinking blood and body, sounds cannibalistic. They were told, people assumed that the Christians, ironically, since they were so conservative sexually, they're assumed that they were having orgies because they referred to their communion and gathering sometimes as love feasts. And that led lots of conversation to happen. They were accused of being atheists. 
because they disagreed. They, they rejected uh, the deity of any of the Roman gods. So because you reject these gods, you must be an atheist. They were accused of being arsonists. Yes, partly because of Nero in 64 when Rome burned, he blamed the Christians. But also because of their language. They talked a lot about the fire of judgment, the fire of the Spirit. And this was suspicious. It was strange language for, for people at the time. They were accused of being disloyal because they refused to worship the emperor. Um, then they were considered to be home wreckers because people were finding that when people became Christians, homes were breaking up because they'd rather be, stick to their faith than hold on to family bound, bonds. And that was radical at the time. And all of this leads to them being slandered even by the Jews because the Jews had to separate themselves from the Christians. And this is why we get this very hard term when he says it's a synagogue of Satan. What he means is this. What is Satan described as doing all through Scripture? Slandering, lying. And so the synagogues in, in Smyrna had stopped being the, doing what they should have been, supporting and feeding and caring for the body of God, the, the people of God, and have now turned to slandering. They've become a synagogue of Satan. That's harsh language, but that's right there. And this is the language. Christians are left in this tough spot. And the comfort is interesting because he comes and Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's going to get a lot better. He says, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. You're going to go to prison. Many of you will die in prison. And then he introduces the devil. First show up here is of the devil. And we're going to talk more about that as we go because there's a lot of references to Satan and the devil. But when he brings the devil into this and how he is at the helm of this, what he's saying is this, similar to all these images, he says, you may be suffering because of governments and individuals. But those governments and individuals are agents of another being, just as you as Christians are agents of another being. And all that you're suffering is this part of this plan of this other being who takes in every culture and every time and every generation, he takes the culture and says, how can I thwart the people of God? And he says, that's what you're suffering right now. Today, it's a different suffering, but it's the same scheme. How do I separate the church from, from Christ? How do I do that? And you'll see later with the images that come of the dragon and the woman giving birth, you're going to see how that all speaks about this. We'll get there. Now, if, that's, if this is what they're suffering, well, then what is the comfort? You know, how, does, how does Jesus comfort them at all? Um, well, first thing is this. He doesn't tell them there's going to be relief from suffering. That's hard, right? Because we want to do that. We want to pray for people who are suffering and say, relief will come. It may not come. There's no claim in Scripture that relief is going to come necessarily in this life. And he says, relief won't come. And this is why, very important, relief cannot come because suffering is what always happens to faithful people. Faithful, the faithful will always be persecuted, always. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So think about this. The only way to stop suffering persecution is to be unfaithful. No matter what, in your life as a Christian, you will, in, up and down, but you'll, there's always going to be persecution. And that doesn't sound very comforting, right? But this is the promise. So what is the comfort he gives? And he does give comfort, and it's wonderful comfort, but it's not what you might expect. So the first thing he does, he encourages them. And he tells them, listen, you're actually suffering because you're faithful. That's an encouragement. That you're not suffering because you've sinned and done something wrong. You, church in Smyrna, are suffering for the Lamb. Not, listen, lots of Christians suffer, but sometimes we suffer because we're stupid. 
Sometimes we suffer because we're incompetent. I've had people say, I was fired because of persecution. And then when you look deeper, you realize, no, you're just incompetent. And that's, listen, that's, this is humanity. Not everything is persecution. Are you being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, for his name? And he says very clearly, they are. And it's very important here, isn't it? Because even Jesus, remember his brothers in John 7 say to him, Jesus, if you want to be anybody, you've got to go to Jerusalem. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And, and what does he say? He says, yeah, you can go, guys, because any time is good for you. But he importantly says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that, about it that its works are evil. See, it's very simple. Faithful church, churches will always be persecuted to some degree because whenever sin comes in contact with a call to repentance, there's going to be thalipsis, pressure, persecution. If you are a church, you're always going to smell different than the culture. You always will. And at some point, you're going to make claims about the culture, demands on the culture that they won't like. How could a people who refuse to to submit ever love being told to submit? And so as a result, the church is going to suffer. And this is an encouragement. So in Revelation, we hear continually that as you suffer for Christ and as you're persecuted, you can smile in it, not because you're enjoying it, but because you know that even your persecution is a sign that you're faithful. And this is an encouragement here. In fact, there's Amos, Amos 5.13. Amos announces to Israel and says, it's very easy. If you want to get on in this world, just do what it says. If you want an easy life, don't be a Christian. There's plenty of better. You can have a nice, easy life. Just do what the world says. And this is not what Smyrna is doing. They are resisting as best they can, and Christ is obviously encouraged by it because he tells them they are. So he encourages them that they're suffering well. Second thing he does is he acknowledges it. Um, the Christians were very vulnerable at the time. Um, can you imagine? You go to church on a Sunday. Maybe you're doing this now. You go to church and you hear the songs and you hear the prayers. You hear the stories of Scripture. You hear the pastor. And then you walk home because they had no cars. And as you're walking home, you're thinking, it doesn't sound true. I know you say this, Carl. I know you say these visions are true. But my family is still suffering. My wife is still struggling. My kids are still struggling. I still have no job. I'm still dying and so on. And so it must have been very difficult. And then to hear, hey church, we have a letter from God for you. And he comes and he addresses specifically the people of Smyrna. Remember, he's the one amidst the lampstands, right? He's in their midst suffering. I am there with you. And he says, not just am I with you, but he says, I know exactly what you're going through. And although it looks like you're destitute, you're rich. This is weird, isn't it? Because all the images, remember the image is a big thing in Revelation. What it looks like is you're struggling and you're suffering and you're being beaten out and you're going to be choked out of existence. But what it means actually is you're rich. And this is almost like it's fulfilling James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And so Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He acknowledges it and says, I know everything you're going through, and there's a plan for it. If if you'll have faith, if you'll endure. This is why the Calvinists in the Reformation refer to one of their little tulip points as being the perseverance of the faith of the saints. That it's to those who who endure in faith who the crown will be given. And they get it from passages like this, where he says, if you endure, you'll get the crown. So he acknowledges their suffering. And lastly which is incredible, is he limits it. He limits their suffering. And here's where you get to the imagery of the 10 days. 
you're going to be put in prison for 10 days. What does 10 days mean? Well, again, remember with the earlier, if, I don't, if we don't get, understand where he gets that number, you'll make up anything you want. You'll say, it's 10 months, Carl, it's 10 years, it's 10 millennia, it's 10 generations, it's 10 pastors, whatever. Where is the only other time in Scripture you see 10 days being used? Anyone? Who said that? What did you say, Daniel? Good boy. Daniel. Good man, not boy. He, I know. <laughs> but it's true in Daniel. Remember what happens. Daniel is whisked away during the Babylonian exile. Babylonia comes at the, end of the, uh, the beginning of the 6th century, wipes out Jerusalem and takes the choice guys out and brings them to Babylon. And Babylonians were excellent assimilators. They understood that you don't invade a country and then try to take it over. What you do is you invade it, and then you make them you. You know what? We could have probably got rid of Castro years earlier if we just flooded him with Coca-Cola. Why resist? Flood the people with what it means to be in a free country and watch them fall. And Babylon understood this. So they take Daniel and his friends and they say, you're going to come and you're going to read our books. You're going to eat our food. You're going to become Babylonian." And Daniel says, I'm going to resist it. I have to resist this defilement. So here's a test. For 10 days, for 10 days, feed us just water and vegetables. And we'll see at the end of 10 days if we are still healthy, as opposed to those who eat from the table of Babylon. Look at what he's saying. This is basically the question here. Which table sustains and nourishes? That of Babylon or that of God? Which table sustains the church? That of Rome or that of God? And at the end, God is saying, it's so clear, he's saying here, if you endure, you're going to look like you're starving. You're going to look like you're starving on the vegetables and, and whatever else, the persecution, but you're actually growing healthier. And if you wait to the end, you're going to not only be, see that you're healthier, but you'll show the world which table sustains. And so the image of 10 days is not meant to be literally taken. I don't believe, you can, and people will still disagree with me. It's pointing us back to Daniel and saying, you're being put, O church, into a similar situation where you are going to be tested. Which table will you eat from? Which one? And that's part of what is going on here. And Smyrna had done well. They had rejected the table of Rome, which is why Christ comes and affirms them. So he comforts them by doing that. He encourages them. He says, you're suffering because you're faithful. I know what's going on. And I've limited it. You're not going to suffer forever. Ten days, and it's going to pop up throughout Revelation, the number ten. Always means limited. You're not going to suffer forever. It's always limited. Because remember, if it was the number seven, or a different number, there'd be questions. But the number ten suggests there's a limit here. Take heart, you won't suffer forever. But there is a period of it that you're asked to be faithful in. So now, how does this help us? Here's the hope. Where's their hope amidst all of this letter. Here's who remembers, um, they don't do it anymore. When I was a kid in, in grade school, they did the Canada Fitness Test. Who remembers the Canada Fitness Test? Yeah, it was awesome. That was basically the greatest test of manhood ever devised. I don't think there's any better. There's the badges you got, remember? Yeah, 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 you're getting flashbacks now. I, for all my years, only got the gold. I could never get the excellence. Okay? And come grade six, I had a chance, but I barely. You know what ruined me? The standing long jump. Remember that? You stand here. Anyway, um, I have a chance. And my last event is the long distance run where you have to run around the gym or the, the soccer field, I don't know how many times. And my little buddies there, I still remember these guys. They're awesome. They're sitting there because they knew I had a chance to finally get it. I didn't get it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, but they're there cheering me on. 
And they're, I mean, they're kids. You think it's so much more serious than as they're yelling, no pain, Carl, no pain, as I'm running. Um, but I don't get it. But the point is this. Why did I finish the race? There was an encouragement from my peers, but it's also because I knew there was a finish. If somebody said, just keep running. So actually, that's what they do in football. Just keep running. <laughs> but if, if there was no end in sight, how could you run? When people say the journey is everything, that's, that's not true. Because if the journey is, the only reason you can journey with hope is because there is a goal. If you just say we're going to drive forever and they're never going to get to Disneyland, yeah, my kids will love that. <laughs> no, there must be an end. And Christ comes and he paints this vision. Revelation, in fact, as a whole, paints this vision of the finish line for us. And it paints this, um, the vision is very simple. Think about, now think about why he says what he says. Remember how I told you last week, the letters always open with a call back to that vision? I'm the first and the last, is that what it says? I'm the first and the last came to life. Remember, that's the vision one. And then he points always at the end of each letter to the seven churches to the eschaton, to when he returns. And he says, I'll give you this crown if you endure. Smyrna was a city of the crown. Remember? That's what they called it. And he is saying, there's two crowns. The city offers you one and I offer you one. Which one are you going to take, Smyrna? Then, remember, the city rose from the ashes. It was called the resurrected city. Will the resurrected city save you or the resurrected God? And there's an option set before them time and again. And it provides you with these different visions. And let's go back to visions and imagination again. Visions must be uh, uh, appropriated. You must take them. And as he's painting this vision, what is the vision that Revelation and all Scripture paints? It's this. Death is not the end. There's a second death that's much worse. That's much fi- it's final. It's a second death. But there is one who conquered death. And he holds now the crown. Because he conquered and he deserved a reward, but received the punishment, he now has the right to bestow the crown on whomever he chooses. And he has not just done that in the past, but in the future he's coming again. Now this vision, today as you're suffering in the present, you reach, the vision pulls you back. He has risen and died and risen. And he is coming back in the future. And what our job and what we do as faithful people is we drag those visions from the past and the the future into the present. And we can endure now. But this requires an incredible exercise of the imagination. Not because it's not true, but because it's hard to believe. Who believes we have people suffering right now at the church? We've talked about it. We've prayed for them. It's difficult to believe that this is true when your spouse is dying or is sick. It's difficult to believe it. The only possible way is through imagination, where you can imagine resurrection, where you can imagine healing, where you can imagine that there is a day when justice will happen, because who can see that now? You must imagine it. This is why the visions come. And we draw the promises out of the light and drag them into our darkness to help us. And this is exactly what we're called to do. And if we can do that successfully, we become a free people, because we're no longer worried about death, We're not worried about our reputation. We are now free to be restorers. We're free to go into the world and ask, how does the gospel change this situation? And we become people sort of like a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was the first bishop of Smyrna. He was born in 69 AD and died in 156, well, 155, 156, we're not sure. This is a picture of him. I'll read that after. As a bishop, he he ran afoul of the Roman government, like many Christians did at the time, and he was sentenced to be killed burned at the stake. If he would just repent and people kept going to him and saying, old man, just recant. You can save yourself death, just recant. And his response 
because he understood the vision and believed it, was what you see on the screen. He said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so Polycarp not only gets burned at the stake, but he doesn't die, so they have to end up stabbing him while he's burning. Miserable death. Why? What allows somebody to do that? Is it just psychosis? Or is it because he had this vision of revelation? We know he knew John. We know he quoted the revelation. He knew the vision. Is it possible that he had appropriated it and endured because he believed it to be true? That if he was faithful, he would earn the crown. And this is part of what we're seeing here. So as a Christian, we're being told he's done it all already. In fact, when he says he's in the midst of us, think he has not only suffered for your sin, but whatever you're going through now, he's actually suffered for that specific thing. He didn't just suffer generally. You know, like if you get a bill at a buffet and it doesn't say what you ate, it just says you had the buffet, right? So you pay for all of it. No, it's not what he did. On the cross, the excruciating separation from God is because he suffered for all sin. Meaning, if you're being persecuted today, you as, oh, I don't know, pick a name, Stanley. Yeah, I don't know, I'm hoping, I'm just trying to think of a name we don't have in the church. Um, if there's a Stanley, like you're suffering, specific persecution for your faith at your work, he suffered already for that. He endured even that. So that you can know that no matter what happens to you here, like Polycarp, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can rob you of the crown because no one has the ability to give it or take it away except him. And so this vision is meant to change us, not just to be read and passed over. We're meant to be changed by it. So as a Christian, endure, because nothing can take it away from you. He has won you the crown. But if you're a skeptic and you're listening, watching here, take, take care. There is a second death. And at the moment, you are running afoul of that God. And you may be offered the crown, but you're no guarantee of getting it. Because you don't trust him, you're thinking, I can endure this. I got it. I've got good enough works to get it through. That is not the gospel. The gospel says he didn't come to make good, bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And that's what we need to see. You need to repent, realize you're dead in your transgression, but there is one who holds the crown of life, who was dead and is alive. And that's Christ, our Savior. Repent and trust the crown offerer, not the world, not the city. Let's pray.